It's September 20th, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today's guest is Richard Newman, who, in his role as a photographer, writer, and educator, has had his hand on the pulse of all things photographic for over 25 years. Though he had his beginnings in television, it's his work with still photography for which he has become known, particularly for his work documenting the tragic story of the Valdez oil spill in Alaska. In his various roles, including National Education Coordinator for Calumet Photographic, Richard brings great insight into the changing face of photography, from digital production to multimedia, which makes him a wonderful addition to the Candid Frame collection of photographers. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Richard Newman. Well, good afternoon, and um, I'm really excited about having a chance to talk to you here. Um, Let's start off with your beginnings as a photographer, because I know you've played a, a variety of different roles um, as a photographer, as an educator, uh, as a writer. But how did it all how did it all begin for you? It, it's it, you know it, it's funny because it's complete full circle for me right now because it started as as playing music and playing music for ten years and deciding that I didn't want to play music anymore and I was always interested in photography through the whole period, but. Music got in, you know, got in the way a little bit, and getting out of school got in the way a little bit, and all that. And, and I got an opportunity to go to New York in 1980 and apprentice for a year at a really tremendous studio, and left there and decided I was either going to stay in New York or move to Los Angeles or go to Nashville. And uh, I went to Chow Praia for Thai food and never had anything like it before in my life, and figured I, this was the place I was going to live. So uh worked here for a year in the studios and got an opportunity to work with a place called Canyon Recorders, which was really the first people in Los Angeles doing sound and pictures together. Um, the first project they did was The Last Waltz, and then they did The Rose, and then we did everything else that was in town. So um, for four years, I got to consult on projects from as weird as Koyana Skatsi yeah. to uh, uh, Spielberg um, when the house came apart in uh, what was the really scary movie Poltergeist yeah when the house came apart at the end in Poltergeist there was 72 different audio effects happening together so with the picture so we provided the machinery that linked everybody up and made everything work on time and we were the guys in town that were doing it. So we, uh, records from Fleetwood Mac and everybody that was working with multi-machines or working multimedia used us as consultants and suppliers of the gear. Okay. And uh, I went to TV for three years after that. I uh, worked for CBS and uh, worked for Hill Street, did Hill Street Blues, did sound for Hill Street Blues and Year in the Life. and. Um, I think of uh, all the shows, but we did 200 hours, network hours of TV a year. And I did it for about four years, and it made me pretty crazy. So 
still photography was a really good answer after that. So I quit in um, 87 and kind of hung out my shingle as a photographer and took whatever work I could get for three or four years. And the Exxon Valdez happened in uh, 1989. And I came home on a... I got the paper on Sunday morning, the New York Times on Sunday morning, and I looked at it and, and went, I don't know if we're getting the story here. And it bugged me for 24 hours, and 24 hours later I had booked a plane to Prince William Sound and went up there and ended up making six trips up there. I was the state photographer in 1990. and. Um, uh, traveled with Denny Kelso, the governor at that time, traveled with him pretty exclusively for a while as the photographer on the project and kind of didn't... That, that, that's compressing a lot of stuff. In it sure is, time. yeah. It, it, so, it, 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 it happened really quick. Yeah, so th tell me about that. I mean, you go up there on your own, you know, saying, okay, I, I, I need to find out what the story is and I need to use my camera to discover it and yeah. share that. How do you, does it go from that to being able to find an audience and buying, finding a customer for, for the images and then that translating into you creating this wonderful opportunity. Completely serendipitously. But I think, I think every project in my life and all this, I think it's, it's so true right now that if you believe it in your heart, you figure out how to make it happen. And if you're making it happen for a good reason, good things come out of it. Um, the third day up there, I ended up in the same three-seater airplane being taken out of a site in Prince William Sound with a writer from the Village Voice who I had never met before. And he didn't have a photographer with him. Hmm. <laughs> so everything just kind of works together. You know, if you're involved in especially something that was as newsworthy as that was, um, and as important as that was, uh, that stuff just works together, I think. You know, if you're trying to do it for the right reason. Um, I came back and within 30 days, I was working with an agent here in town. And she knew I was going up there to do this. And she started calling contacts. Um, 30 days after my first trip back, I opened a show at the University of New Mexico on the Valdez. And it went from there to Santa Monica College with two days in between, and it started on a trip. The show started on a trip then that traveled. I think it did. I think we did 20 venues around the United States. We did 15 venues in South America, in major museums in South America, uh, because it was a real problem for them, too, is what they were dealing with with oil pollution at that time wasn't so much a tanker spill, but it was um, people going into the jungle and cutting lines. And polluting the jungle, you know, with with crude oil. So it it really was open to me about 1989 that it's not just an oil company that chooses to let a guy drive that had been drinking for a period of time and not placing any blame on anybody or anything, saying anybody was wrong. Maybe not the best decisions, but it really comes down to you and me. And when we turn on the car, we're just as responsible. Yeah. And the, it really, the work really became important to me in, in the trips. I mean, I got private funding from Patagonia. I got funding from Harman uh, for materials and products. Um, a lot of people in town showed the work. Um, a lot of people got behind it here in Los Angeles, got behind the work. Um, I got funding from up there. 
I made the images available to them. Yeah. If they would take, give me a place to stay for a week when I was there, they could have it. So I worked with the Cordova Fishermen's District Union, you know, and I worked with the state of Alaska. The state of Alaska got access to all the images. Um, it's a funny digital connection. But in 2007, the, I was contacted by the University of Alaska that they would like the entire archive. And I went, oh, wow. You know, there was six trips and there was a thousand rolls of film and there was all this and there was prints and everything. And how will I... What do I do? I have to redo the whole thing, you know. And yeah. you know, you think that your work at that time wasn't very good. And when I started looking through the the archive, if it had been digital and it was fifteen years different, Lord knows how we would have made the prints. But it was all film, mm. and I had I delivered over a thousand pieces in a week. Wow. So it all went. It's it, it's in the White House archives. Um, uh, it went around. It, it traveled, and it did the right thing. You know, it it promoted the process of what happens with our actions. Yeah, yeah the the whole story behind that, and the reason I ask you for those details is because as an educator, you're often hearing from people who want to make this a bigger part of their lives. And they often think about, okay, I need to take step A, that'll lead to step B, step C. They're looking at it in terms of sort of a, a, a clear, delineated path. And more than often, I so often hear stories like you about people, you know, saying, there's something here that I really want to do. I don't know if there's a market for it. I, I, I have no clear idea in terms of how I'm going to actually sell this, but I know I have to do it. And they take the leap and they go out and do it. And as a result things start coming into play. And I think so many people think about, well, I need to find someone new. I need to find the market before I go to do it. And I think yours is a perfect example. Sometimes you just need to you just need to make the leap. You just need to do it before you've figured any of that out. Yeah, I, I believe that. I mean, we, had, we got support from Val Kilmer, who voiced over. We did a very, very, very rough, took all my still work and turned it into video at that time. And I think it turned into about a nine-minute piece, and it took us what would take us take me on the computer now a day. I think it took us eight weeks, you know, to transfer all these slides and all these still shots. We had to, we couldn't scan them; there were no scanners, you know. So we had to video photograph them all and get them all on tape like that, and uh, create a piece on it. It was called "Footprint on the Water." And we had Val and his wife at the time, Joanne uh, Wally Kilmer, uh, as the vocal pieces, people on it. Um, Val was working on the uh, Doors movie. And he would come over from being on the set as Jim Morrison, and they would come in, and I asked him to be a Native American speaker. So he would go from one role to the other and mm. gave us three days of time to do it. Um, but you're right, everybody got involved from that let's make a statement we're passionate about this. You know, this is what we love to do. I, had, I mean, I had B of A and TWA as clients, still clients. And mm -hmm. I called friends and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. These pictures don't mean anything to me. These pictures mean something to me now. You know, how am I going to pay the rent? I don't really care. 
this other work that I was doing stopped making sense. Yeah. And it's like, okay, let's... I took a couple of years of really bad environmental pictures. You know, I went around L.A. for a couple of years, and I thought it was my job to shoot every piece of garbage that... <laughs> <laughs> but how did, how did that transition into you actually doing work that really served your soul, that really satisfied you, that, but also provided you a means to be able to make a living? It just came. You know, the, the, the work just came. I, I got little jobs out of it. You know, I got Nature Conservancy jobs out of it. I got NRDC jobs out of it. I kind of built a little weird little documentary group of, of clients, but um, mostly it was just wanting to do that work. Were people discovering the work and, and as a result being led to you, or were you going yes. out there and yes. saying, no. hey? I, I, I really didn't have time to do it because I went there the last week of March, and had a show a month later of the work. So in the meantime, I had been there, photographed, processed, edited, printed. A month after that, I had this show in Santa Monica, and four days after that, I was back in Alaska. Hmm. You know, and then it just went like that, and I just stayed concentrated on doing the work. Wow. You imagine that that was before the Internet. Mm-hmm. I did have an agent at the time who was who was out there, you know, calling people about the work. Right. But um, but can you imagine what it would have been like had the internet out there? Internet had been out there, and the work was being distributed, and and, and people were gaining awareness. Maybe what we have now. Maybe I wouldn't be driving a Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to though. Uh, so, you know, you're succeeding as as, as a photographer, but then you're also you know, I see that you're writing articles, that you're doing a lot more stuff in terms of sort of education. So how did that sort of fit into your role you know, as I, being an image maker? I, it, part of paying the bills is paying the bills. And really, when I said to the commercial people that I was working for that I didn't want to take their pictures anymore, there's not a lot of money in documentary work, especially there's a lot of money going out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took a part-time job with... Um, with a camera store and um, just to stay involved in it and kind of got approached by Calumet that they might have something here and really have opened this doors. I'm really concerned about photo education. Always have been. Because when I was making the switch from sound to photography, I looked at photo schools. And I didn't feel that I found one that gave me real serious, real-world skills in a period of time. And it always kind of left a big hole in the way that I was thinking about stuff because there was no... You know, if, if, it's, if it's not there for me, how many other people is it not there for? And then we as a company got heavily involved in where the education, where photo education was. We've been, we've been involved in it for a long time, but we really put some focus to it about eight, nine years ago with this program. And it's just where it's led. You know, it's an interesting road because photo education, people come to it. For so many reasons. 
people come to photography for so many reasons. They come because they love to be outdoors. They come because they like glitz and glamour and they want to be fashion photographers. You know, they come because they want to uh, take forensic photographs. Who knows why they come to photography? There's all these reasons to come, but everybody needs training and everybody needs that. And they need ground and basis skills. And as we as a company got more involved in what was out there in photo education, what you start to see are where the holes are. And where we really saw the hole was the educational community was pretty resistant to digital photography for a really long time. And I'm sure a lot of the resistance was in the fact that it was so expensive in the very beginning. When you have an administrator that's used to buying uh, enlargers with a 20-year life cycle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this person says, yes, and I'm going to get this 20 years amortization across it and stuff like that, and I'm going to get all this for it. And then all of a sudden you come to them and you say, well, yeah, that's great. You know, you got those for $600, but now you got to buy this $32,000 thing, and we think it's going to be great for about nine months. Well, there's no programs in the schools at that time to even begin to teach digitally. Mm-hmm. And I think photographers are very campy people. You know, they're either Canon or Nikon or I shoot Leica or I'm a Hasselblad shooter or I shoot Lamy or whatever they shoot. And for a long time it was, I'm either film or digital. And it's kind of like if somebody gave you all the toys in the world to play with, why push some of the toys away. It's what we're seeing with video right now, too. You know, is is all of a sudden there's all these new toys in video, but while we're still photographers, well, we're image makers. You know, I think our world's getting bigger. I don't think any work's going away from us. Yeah, Yeah, because I'm seeing that, because I was around when that whole transition from film to digital, and I remember, you know, the resistance to it and and people not wanting to sort of embrace it. And and all of a sudden, seeing that wave that came in where all of those photographers who had been putting it off all of a sudden realized that, uh-oh, it's it's coming and I'm not ready for it. It's yeah. already here. Yeah. You it's know, here. and it's passing me by. Yeah. And I think that's happening right now with this whole element of, of digital, digital movie making being incorporated in digital SLRs. And I know a lot of photographers are looking at that and going... Yeah, but I don't want to become a videographer. I don't want to become a cinematographer. I'm a still photographer. Um, but nevertheless, seeing that 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 convergence is happening, so especially in your role, I mean, you're dealing with professional photographers. You're dealing with amateur photographers. You're dealing with people that are using photographer photography as a component of their other business. So, what what do you see happening? Because I think you have a unique perspective in terms of what, that convergence. I I just. I just see this video as, as, as an oncoming train and, and right now the, the thing that everybody's leaving out is the audio aspect of it. You know, oh wow, well we've got this 5D, you know, Mark II now that makes movies, makes full HD and now the new Rebel makes full HD in the thing, but the sound's crap. And when you have any kind of understanding of creating image images those images, those images are fine, but if you have bad sound, you have nothing. 
If you have great sound all the way through, there's anything you can do with it. You can edit, you can throw in a still over the, you can, if you've got a bad pickup or you have bad continuity, you can fix all that. Mm -hmm. You know, you can fix it with a close up. You can fix it a whole bunch of different ways. But if you have bad sound, you can't fix it. And I think we're learning that we can tell a story, you know, as our attention span drops more and more and more. We get to that three-minute barrier, you know, where we can't. If we look at all the demographics and you look at all the all the information that's out there, you know, YouTube views over three minutes going go mm -hmm. down like mad. They can they'll sit there for two minutes or two and a half minutes. So we've really got to tell our story really, really, really fast. You know, if 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 we're gonna if we're gonna be impactful in our image making and all this is. We're becoming all becoming image makers, whether we want to or not. Um, I don't know how a company takes a still photograph and doesn't get 30 seconds of motion for their website or doesn't get 30 seconds of motion for their MySpace or their YouTube space or their Facebook page or whatever. You know, when you see people creating motion and, and creating interviews on their computer and we're accepting less and less quality but yet as professionals when we produce something with really good quality because we know about quality we know what it looks like the acceptance is a lot greater and people go wow that's really really torn to this uh, Vincent LaFarrette the photographer from the New York Times with his 5D Mm -hmm. His 5D thing, and he shot it in two days, you know, and he shot it at night and did nothing with it. And the last time I saw him, I saw him in New York in um, October, and he was not taking still assignments. Six months before, he'd been nothing but a still photographer, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning still photographer, and now was not taking still assignments, was only taking motion assignments. And he's moved out here. And he's moved out here. You know, and all he did was say, wow, how's this work? How can, I, how can I translate what I see to what this tool will do now? You know, it, yeah. we, 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 when, when, when digital got really big, the scary thing to me was that we were going to make all our pictures in a box of 0 to 255. Because when you look at a Ralph Gibson black and white photograph, you see Gibson as we did it all wrong. You know, he overexposed it by three stops and he overprocessed the film and he created these beautiful graphic black and white images. So I think back to Bobby Lane and, and her cross processing, you know, yeah. and her just complete mastery of, of cross processing film. Well, she did that because she took negative or positive film and processed it the opposite way and overexposed it wrong and had it processed wrong and she tested it and she found what worked for her. And I was really afraid that we were going to be making, all be making these pictures in the 0 to 255 box. You know, if it was overexposed, it was blank and you knew it and you could tell it was a bad thing, you know, and you didn't get that Gibson-esque look or something. If it was underexposed, you just knew it, you know. So easy to make a good exposure right now. Are we breaking any rules? And then all of a sudden, here comes the video train where we can we can jump on and create anything. Yeah, I think you know. I think when I 
when I hear the resistance to it, it's I'm realizing that there, there's a fixation on the mechanism, you know, the, the machines, the, the the cameras, the software. But the real question is, well, what do you want to say? What do you want to say? What do you want to do? I mean, if you if you start What's looking the story? at story, yeah, you start looking at photography, regardless of, of of the device that's being used. Ultimately, that's that's at the heart of why you picked up the camera in the first place. And if you and if you stay focused on that, all of a sudden you're looking at all this technology as, as another opportunity to be able to do just that. Right. And and, and you know, I, I think there's also I think photographers right now, I think they're I think we're learned out. You know, we had to make this transition from film that we had taken 15 or 20 years to perfect how we did it and do it really right. And all of a sudden we had to become digital photographers or we didn't have jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, now all of a sudden somebody says video, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, let me sit here. Let me sit here a minute. You know, let me get comfortable in this realm. And then all of a sudden here comes motion and it's like, I can't. I can't learn this. I just can't learn anything. I can't learn anything. My brain's full, you know. And even if it's not so much a learning full, it's just an, an issue of time because yeah. all of a sudden, you know, as well as having had to have learned all this stuff in terms of Photoshop and Lightroom or Aperture and digital cameras, all of a sudden now you have to be proficient in Final Cut, an audio engineer, yeah. all these other things. So, yeah. how does a photographer who, particularly in this economy, is just trying to maintain a viable business, what kind of choices does he or she have in terms of being able to embrace all of this other stuff but within a limited time of hey, I only have, you know, twenty four hours in a day. That's 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 the that's the interesting part of photo education, isn't it? That's really the interesting part of it because it really becomes okay, so how do we educate for that? You know, we can't sit there and argue about it really anymore. We need professionals in the field, in the institutions. We need free-thinking institutions that will say, okay, so we'll bring this guy in once a week and he can give assignments. We don't have to put him on staff. You know, we can we can relate to this. If you're changing a program or putting a program in, it can take 18 months to put that through committees and put it in the catalog and put it out there to the public and see if the public wants to respond to it. People don't have 18 months. I mean, what about the wedding industry? You know, the wedding photography industry right now. What are people doing? Well, we'll take the video, we'll take the videographer and we'll get some stills out of the video guy. You know, Will we hire the big still photographer that we did in the past? Maybe, but I think he's a commodity right now that I think they're a negotiated commodity right now. And I and that's scary. That's scary for a huge market segment of photography. But if you look at that market segment, that market segment's been moving into video for a really long time. They've been learning it. They've been seeing that that's what their customers want. Who would have thought that you would deliver to the bride and groom, 15 minutes after the last dance, a five-minute synopsis video of the wedding that all your guests can sit around and enjoy with you together. Mm-hmm. And then you would have a website where they can go and order what they need and do this and do that. Who would have thought that 10 years ago? Yeah. 
Nobody. So do we have time to do that or do we need to create new levels of learning, online learning, you know, that is available out there that's taught at a pro level? Yeah, and that's one of the, that's one of the things that's being faced by the magazine industry, particularly the photo education, you know, all the photo magazines, which used to be the key resource for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to get their photo education didn't have the benefit of going to school, are finding that a lot of the, a lot of those people, particularly the younger generation, are turning to YouTube. They're turning to podcasts. They're turning to the internet for their photo education, and not to the magazines or, or books. Though they still play a role. Largely, people go if I want to learn how to do something. If I don't want to learn how to light with, you know, a speed light, I'm going to go to the strobist. Yeah, and and, and look at the response. <laughs> look at look at the response from that. I mean, I've authored three books and been involved in two other ones. And I knew when I was working on my first book seven years ago, I knew it was dead. The publisher that I was working with was having me edit on hard copy. And they would send me these these things together and I would edit this thing on hard copy. And, you know, I'd be sitting on a plane editing this book going... We have computers, mm-hmm. and I knew it was. I knew. I. I. I it's. It's. I, I don't know how you write a book right now. I don't know how you write any kind of technical book right now, because by the time it hits press, it's not necessarily relevant. Yeah. And it, it, the world's moving fast. Imagery's moving. It's what a great time. I think I think it's just you know glass half empty or half full, right. you know. I mean, how do you want to look at it? Do you want to embrace it and go, I, you know, maybe I don't need to learn Final Cut. Maybe I can hire somebody that knows Final Cut. You know, exactly. photography's made this huge circle. When Calumet started, we made sinks, stainless steel sinks. Nineteen thirty-nine, we made stainless steel sinks. Not a really big repeat customer, you know. And then we made these view cameras in the 40s and the 50s that are still active today. And people are still, we just took in, in, in some in trade from a school in Illinois. We paid them more used than they paid for them new 30 <laughs> years before. You know, mm-hmm. not really good for repeat customers. And then the 60s came along and photographers who all had their stainless steel sinks in their labs in their studios went, well, I can be making a lot more money if I'm snapping the shutter, and I don't need to process this film. So the lab industry grew. And all of a sudden, we had these two things that, that fed, fed us as a company. Labs and photographers. And we saw them all the time. Mm-hmm. And digital came around, and all of a sudden, for some reason, every photographer now wants to be a lab again. Yeah. You know, where we have these tremendous labs that have been trained in pr- producing professional stuff for a long time... We can't let them go. I use an out, uh, outside source for all my printing. I, I'm represented by Lisa Casino Gallery in, in, in where I live in, in, in Monterey. and all my, all my prints are created by an outside lab under my supervision, but they're still created by an outside lab because there's no way that I can produce them to the quality level that they can produce them for. And do I have to keep buying this stuff? 
I mean, I have an Epson 2400 I've never gotten a printout of that I like. And how long have I had it? Three years? It's kind of a document printer. Yeah, because it was, it was this whole idea that all of a sudden you get a computer, you get a camera, you get a printer, all of a sudden you can take care of all this stuff in-house. And then people started realizing, God, this takes a lot of time. This takes a lot of time. I could be making money just doing this snapping thing, you know, focusing and, and making imagery and things like that. I could be making money for that. And versus sitting there watching the blue bar go across the screen, you know. Yeah, and I think that's, that has to be sort of the big question, particularly for people who are professional, and even those are people who are considering a professional career, is where does your time actually make you the most money? Where do you get the biggest return on your time? And those things that you aren't making a return, you delegate to somebody else. And whether it's, you know, someone to do all the stuff in terms of Final Cut or whether it's still Photoshop or, or Photoshop. whatever it is, you know, I mean, let's have some assistance. Let's start employing some some people and, and, and start doing that again. I mean, we're all photographers. They're all control freaks, right? I mean, we wouldn't be... Photographers, if we weren't complete utter control freaks, and I think that that all of a sudden, oh well, we can have this lab in here, you know, and we can we can make all our prints in in house. I mean, I'm just looking around at these images behind in, in, in the room that we're in. There's no way that that I could make a print anywhere near as beautiful, you know, without throwing a whole bunch of money at it. And would that money pay me back? In the eight years, or in the two years, or the year that the printer's relevant. Yeah. And I think that brings us sort of back to this whole idea of this whole video convergence. I think, I think for some photographers, I think it's worth it to them to get involved in learning that and involving that. If, if it serves what they're trying to say, you know, with their art, with their photographs. And then there are others who, who really, you really don't need to learn all that, but it may be important to be... Uh, informed enough about it that when it comes to having a client that you can say, I have people. I have somebody on my team. Yeah, have somebody on your team that, you know, I mean, realize that, man, how do you present a campaign without motion? I mean, motion is going to be in every campaign because the free advertising that's available to companies, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all this free advertising that's out there, when money's tight, we're going to look for every venue we can mm -hmm. to promote product. So the photographers that you deal with all the time, what are they coming to you and saying, you know, you need to do this in terms of education? What are they, what are they saying? What are they demanding of you um, in terms of saying, okay, you need to offer me this because this is what I need right now? You know what they want the most is, a, is an outlet. They want a place to go. They want a place to, to, to where do I start? Mm -hmm. You know, where do I go and where do I start looking for that? I mean, I think that, that Strobist is a, a tremendous example of that. I mean, it, there was a lot of wilderness out there and he's shown a really bright light. And it was attractive. And it is attractive. You know, and light and darkness is, is an attractive thing and I, I don't know if it's out there yet I don't know if the if the if the video marriage is out there yet I mean you look at the comments on our YouTube site about the 5d mark II and you read them all and 
boy, it's 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 a little bit of a war. Well, just because you have a camera now that does motion doesn't mean you're a filmmaker. No, you're right. Mm-hmm. This camera's never this still camera is never going to do what my video camera does for me. It's a different tool. It doesn't mean I'm not an imager. I think a still photographer has 14 legs up. And probably this is probably the wrong thing to say, but I think a still photographer has 20 legs up over a videographer because they know how to make a good image already. They know how to compose. They know what a good image looks like. They know what's impactful. They know what light's about. They know all this stuff versus just some guy that's big enough to hold a, a video camera and, and you know shoot news, shoot ENG yeah. news for you know three years and then say, yeah, I know about video. Yeah, you might know about video, but what have you been? Photograph. Yeah, you know, particularly when, when people are coming out, well, they'll just be able to put out the best still shot. Yeah. Yeah, well, relatively, because still, the, re- the best still shot that this videographer could come up with who has no could sense light of lighting campus could light it. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, the basis of the whole thing is light. You know, it's light. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter. We got nothing if we don't have light. So people trained in traditional forms of image making as it be still photography or motion picture you know motion one of the first things they learn is light and good light does it mm-hmm. bad light who who cares so <laughs> what is all this stuff you know where does it go no for you Specifically I'm having, for you, I'm, I'm having the most fun I've ever had. How's it? How's it? How's it changed what you do as a as a photographer? Um, I'm still taking a lot of still images, but we released four DVDs last year, um, four full length DVDs. Uh, we uh, even with stills, they're becoming part of motion. It allowing me to marry all my audio training. 10 years of audio, 15 years of high-end audio training, it allows me to marry all this because if you look at even the most incredible still pictures for 30 seconds, if there's nothing behind it in terms of sound, it's sleepy time. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you're not going to keep, you're not going to keep my, you're not going to keep my attention. And for me, it's turned me into much more of a video uh, or a motion photographer, but all of a sudden, we're starting to see video cameras that think like still cameras. The new Canons think like still cameras. And all of a sudden, you can say, well, I can slow that shutter speed down. You know, what happens? Wow, doesn't that look cool? Let's see how that goes. Let's see where that goes. You know, what happens if I do this? What happens if I speed that up? You mean I can play that backwards? Oh, yeah, I can, can't I? It's just the numbers. It's just a number going past. Yeah, I can really do anything I want with that. What can I do there? So I think it just opens up the world. If and it's a lot of learning. Yeah, I think it's a perfect <laughs> opportunity for people who are still wanting to play. You know, who are just saying, "Let me see what this does." You know, not place any judgment on it. You know, and just you know, I I, I got I got really lucky in in, in my life, I, and I got to meet a lot of really well-known still photographers and I think that you just said the word play I think about I met George Harrell when he was 83 years old Hmm. and he wanted to know what the newest photo paper was and what the newest film was and what did these lights do and here was a guy that 
could have rested on his laurels from the first 10 photographs he made for his entire life. And at 83, he wanted to change. You know, he, he wanted to know what was new. He wanted to know, I mean, I think about Jay Maisel. Holy cow. Yeah. You know, there's this guy that is, is so far off the hook in terms of, well, let's go. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. time to go. Let's put the pedal down on this one and see what happens, you know. Um, I'm just encouraged by those people that, yeah, it's, it's playing. I, I think Ansel would have been a, a monstrous player on yeah. the computer, you know, because he was a monstrous player in the darkroom, you know, just whatever they could come up with. I, I, lives run for the period that they're supposed to run for, and who knows, you know, why. I, but I spent a little time working up, up for Ansel, and he had the first Mac computer that came out. You know, I mean, he really had, I kind of think what they were called, they, they, they weren't even called Apples, they were called Macintoshes. And yeah, the Apple II, Apple II C. Yeah, and it was a square box and it had the world, you know, worst monitor and you <laughs> put a floppy disk in it, you know, and you hope that it, that it worked. But, but he was thinking about it then, you know, and, 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 and what would have happened with him. It's half empty, half full. You know, it. Yeah. it, it it's I, a lot of challenges. Yeah, and all you need is those few people who just take it and run with it, and then everyone wakes everybody up. wants to do it. And also, everyone wakes yeah. up to it. So, yeah, I was I was watching uh, Les Etes, mm -hmm. that French film that was made in the fifties, yeah. just a series of still images, and I was looking at that and looked. You know, all of a sudden, a, a motion picture was made using stills, and. This film, all of a sudden, is kind of speaks to what's available to us now. Today. Just, yeah. I mean, look at the still photographers that made motion. Evans. I mean, we got a list of people that, that have thought about motion um, for a really long time. A lot of pretty heavy hitter still photographers that, that, that really investigated motion. But expensive difficult to use at the time, all of a sudden the cost comes down to almost nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we have HD video recorders right now that have external audio inputs that are $600, $700, you know. Who, who, who would think, you know, 10 years ago, if Leica brought out a new camera body and it was $2,100 or $2,500, everybody said, why, who needs it? We've still got our F3s. You know that we paid four hundred and fifty dollars for, and now we don't. We bat an eye, but it's not uncommon to see a seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve thousand dollar DSLR. You know, and and yeah, you're going to replace that in a time. I mean, I know that 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 if you would have sold somebody an enlarger. And two years later, you would have come to him and said, you need a new one. They would have laughed you out of the room. Why? I don't know. It doesn't do anything different, you know? Right. Um, and this stuff really doesn't do much that, that much difference. I mean, I, I keep a little two-meg camera in my bag just for effects. Some of the pictures I love are cell phone pictures. Yeah. You know, I, I've always... I, I, we sponsored Ken Burns, County Met sponsored Ken Burns for uh, Society for Photographic Education in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. 
And I was sitting in this mid-1600s church, getting ready to introduce him. And I was looking around, and I was thinking, you know, this was three, four years ago, and I was thinking, okay, so hold the cameras. They were really great, you know, and they were this one twenty twelve dollar camera, and everybody loved them, and, and pros made careers out of them, and people shot CD covers and stuff with them forever, and there was a lot of work done with this really inexpensive tool. And I was looking around going, what's the next, where's the next digital holder, you know, what's the next digital holder? And as I was sitting in the auditorium waiting to introduce him, I was looking around and people were snapping pictures yeah. with their cell phone cameras and I went, oh, I, you know, not right now. Why are you so blind? You know, dummy. <laughs> Look around, open up your eyes. Well, the last question I always ask is, I ask a photographer to suggest another photographer for our listeners to explore. It could be someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. But who would that be for you and why? Boy, I'd, I'd ask you to talk to Dennis Keeley. Um, he's chair of the art department at... Uh, he's chair of the photo department at Art Center. Um, he's a professional with a tremendously long career. Uh, I think I think he has two pictures in Rolling Stone's Top 100 Uh album covers you know um, Dennis's Dennis's work is for the Getty it's 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 for everybody and now he's um, running a photo department at a very prestigious art school and I think his program is one of the most far-reaching in bringing ideas to pictures because it doesn't matter if it's whatever the medium, including motion, bad stuff of a fuzzy concept is bad stuff. Bad imagery of a great concept can be worked on and refined, or it could become a trend. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, we used to do this thing here in, in L.A. where we had people gather and show their work at the at the Fuji Tech Center. We did it once a month. And I remember that. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And we had one we had one Dennis was Dennis was the person that night that I had asked to come kind of chair with me, you know, and, and, and look at work and and we had one girl and she brought up her work and it was I looked at the first print and it was terrible. It was the worst black and white print I'd ever seen, I thought. And it was dirty and nasty and printed badly and the whole bit and she flipped over the second one and it was just like that one except a completely different thing and I looked past the technique and I looked into the imagery and the imagery was unbelievable and I said Dennis come over here and look at this and he looked at the three pieces that she looked and he said what does your instructor he asked her he said what does your instructor say about this work and she said well you know, he says I should be a better printer and I need to do this and this is this. And, and he said, what does she say about the ideas? That, that story is wonderful. And just thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy, and but this is a, a wonderful opportunity to have a chance to well, great fun, to yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send me an email at thecandidframe at gmail.com 
or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also join a growing community of photographers by joining the Candid Frame fan group on Facebook or the Flickr group. Till next time, this is Ibarian X Pirello and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.